Welcome to EQ Minds Recharge Your Mental Health Podcast. I'm Chelsea Pottinger, the host of this show, and I have some very exciting news. My book, The Mindful High Performer, is now available in the UK. Tap the link in the description to listen to small shifts you can make today to be a calmer, happier, more productive version of yourself. This week on our podcast, I speak to Antoinette Latouf. Antoinette is a media personality, mental health ambassador, TEDx speaker, co-founder of Media Diversity Australia, and the author of How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. She's also a co-host of The Briefing Podcast, Australia's fastest growing news podcast. Today's episode is about how do you foster grit in life? Tips to get through challenging times, how to become more confident with speaking up around important issues, and what Antoinette does these days to safeguard her mental health. Antoinette is a magnificent person, and I hope you learn some valuable tips from this podcast. Let's get started. I am so incredibly grateful to have the beautiful Antoinette Latouf with us today. Welcome, Antoinette, to the show. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I thought we'd start this podcast with where your story began. You know, I feel like you have this incredible drive, but you had to fight, you know, your way through this journey. You know, you had to fight to stay in school. You had to fight for your education to be heard. And I'd love to, I love the audience to know how you kind of came through your journey and ended up in this media, journalism, incredible author. If you could take us back to where it all began, that would be amazing. Yeah, sure. So my parents came to Australia as refugees from the Middle East. And so for some context, they got pulled out of school when they were seven, seven and eight. So they had very little education in Arabic, zero in English, uh, and lived a very kind of subsistent lifestyle. My dad was a shepherd before he came to Australia, uh, where he met my mum. So they had very patriarchal views on well, just everything and on a woman's role. I'm one of seven children. I'm uh, the fifth kind of, and I'm one of five girls. And for so much of my life, I was told that my social currency is my marriageability. That was, an education was secondary, but I was always curious and always loved to learn. And so from a really young age, I just had to just push to, um, to feed that hunger that I had. I had this amazing Indigenous teacher. I had her both in year two and year six. And I remember she identified, because we were super poor, uh, my parents couldn't help us with our homework. They didn't, under, you know, didn't understand. Uh, my mum learned ABCs when we were learning ABCs. Uh, and um, I mean, she identified that I had, you know, this real insatiable appetite for knowledge and that I would question things. And this was at the time when, you may remember, we were taught that, you know, Captain Cook discovered Australia. He was this amazing white saviour. Nothing existed before. Indigenous people were heathens and, you know, we, they needed to be saved by the white man. But from a really young age, she was teaching me, like she was teaching me Australia's true history, Australia's Indigenous history, and giving me books. Um, and she would just kind of, and so I feel that having her in my corner, and having this amazing woman, go, you don't need to accept what's in what you've been told, what's in the curriculum, what I've been told. She kind of went rogue. Here I am, maybe seven years old. From that, I think that really fed this desire to just not accept what's been delivered to you. Um, and so when I got to year ten. 
my father suggested I drop out of school. And it was like, that's enough. That's enough education. Um, you know, do something that's going to be family friendly, become a hairdresser. I have many relatives who are amazing hairdressers. I can't cut a piece of paper in a straight line. Like I'm just not that way inclined. You can't push that upon me. And so I argued and I fought to stay, to finish school and to go to university. Nobody I knew had been to university other than maybe like the GP I went and visited. I wasn't around anybody who was a, a professional. Who, I didn't have access to that kind of life. Um, so I went to my careers advisor. I went to an awful school um, in Western Sydney. There are great schools in Western Sydney, just not the one I went to because it was most known for uh, graduating people who then went on to outlaw motorcycle gangs um, or straight into jail. And so that was kind of the environment I grew up in. I, I, but I had a lot of social awareness because I went to my first baby shower when I was 15, one of my peers. There were lots of kids in housing commission, um, we just, we, I, I just wasn't sheltered in any way, shape or form. I wasn't privileged in any way, shape or form. But that really fed this, um, oh, this just enormous interest in injustice, in equity, in storytelling. So I remember going to my careers advisor in year 10 and going, well, I want to go, to, I, I want to be a storyteller. I want to be a journalist. I want to go to the best journalism school in New South Wales. And at the time it was University of Technology, Sydney. And he took a deep breath. He was like, oh, Antoinette, why don't you why don't you consider going to the local TAFE? And maybe after a year, maybe after a year, Antoinette, um, you will be considered to go, you know, you maybe you get a bridging and some access to uh, a kind of a fourth tier university communication degree. Uh, and I remember just at that point, I just always backed myself. Um, mm -hmm. And I sort of told him, I think you, I think you should consider a career change. Because if this is if this is your career's advice for someone who's telling you they want to go to the best journalism school, then you're not equipped to do your job. And so I changed schools after that um, conversation without my parents knowing as well. So, so that's a little a little bit about a little bit about me. So I guess I've never I've never done what was expected of me, and I have never accepted the very low bar that I have been told I should operate under. It's unbelievable. You've really kind of broken out of that that mould and do you feel like that's where your grit was born through those I, kinds of? I think so because nothing nothing was easy. Um, not getting a slice of pizza at the kitchen table when there's so many hands trying to eat, um, not getting attention or validation because independent, smart, opinionated people shouldn't be women, they shouldn't be Arab women. Um, and that's, just, that's what I was brought up to believe and so yeah I guess I always had to defy what was expected of me it's not fun um, but it also gave me a level of resilience and zero care factor um, mm -hmm. the further along in my journey I got. Yeah I, I think it's incredible because you've you've had that upbringing and then you've had this incredibly successful career you're an award-winning journalist you're a media commentator you're an author diversity advocate you have a, you're a beautiful wife and you've got gorgeous two children. From the outside looking in, you know, you have it all. Now, is that, can you have it all? You know, was there any other bumps along the way that you're like, you know what, Chelsea, there are some hard times in there too? Yeah, I, I don't think you can have it all at once, um, especially not when you become a mother, especially not because there are so many gendered expectations about what you should and shouldn't do when you become a mother because there isn't enough support in early education and care to get women fully back into the workforce. So I suffered 
really debilitating postnatal depression with my second child, which I think was a co- linked to after years and years and years of therapy, a combination of factors. I wasn't sure how to be this um, successful, independent, barrier-breaking journo and still be an Arab housewife in the way I wanted to be, an, an Arab mother, maintain my culture. I didn't know how to reconcile the anxiety, the insomnia with the expectations and the judgment from my wider community who don't talk about mental illness. Um, and so there were so many things that I, I struggled with. And again, but people didn't realise that because they looked at me on social media and I was so thin like six weeks postpartum. And they'd be like, oh, my God, babe, you bounced back. You look amazing. And I was like, it's because I'm not eating and sleeping and I'm a, sh- I'm a shell of who I, who I actually am. I can't be in the same room as my baby. I don't want to touch her. I, don't want, I wake up and I don't want to get, get through the day. I don't want to live. Um, so, yeah, it was, it's really hard. And then, oh, I shouldn't get upset. Um, and then added the, the backdrop of the cultural expectations that you should, you know, motherhood is revered, family is everything. Our culture is, um, you know, family is the bedrock of, of who we are and what we do, family and community and food. It's what we do brilliantly. And I just wasn't doing it at all, let alone well. So there's a, a huge level of judgment. And then, and then also thinking, you know, and I would heard all, you know, maybe it's because you're a career woman. Maybe it's because you're too, you, maybe because you too, you got too focused on your education as though the two offset each other, as though by being that wiped out the ability to be a good mother or to still uphold so many of the beautiful things of my heritage that I love, as though they were mutually exclusive. Um, so that's probably, that's been the hardest thing that I've ever experienced. It's, it's something that I continue to you know, continue to to try and manage. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for your honesty there and your vulnerability because, you know, I met you at a Gidget Foundation event and we definitely connected over our perinatal anxiety and depression stories. And I think when you go through such intense times like that, you do realise, you know, how important your mental health is. Mm. And you have a lot, you know, you juggle a lot. I juggle a lot, but I also have pretty good boundaries around me to protect my mental health. And I'd love to know what you do. You know, what are you doing these days after going through something like that uh, and still striving and achieving, which is great. Um, but what are you doing to, to safeguard your mental health these days? I usually do it well, but not always. So for me, since that experience with postnatal depression and anxiety, um, my it's it's an ongoing journey Uh, it's not something I bookended and got over so to speak and I know some people do some people experience it they come out the other end I'm so much better than I used to be but I still do therapy regularly I'm still on medication I still have to exercise all the time prioritize a lot of sleep when I don't sleep my anxiety starts to peak again Um, But I don't always do it well. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, because I have had so much on with my book and with the TED Talk and just with lots and lots of work, I wasn't prioritising my mental health. I was burning the candle at both ends. I wasn't sleeping enough. I was probably drinking too much because I'd be out at events and second glass of wine. And then, you know, it's, it's a depressant. You wake up feeling worse. And that culminated just a few weeks ago. I was at a writer's festival and I just wasn't feeling well. I just wasn't feeling well, but I just had to push on and push on because I had event after event after event. And I was like, I'm just going to get through the end of this week. And then there was this moment where an audience member stood up um, 
and she's a prominent Indigenous woman and she'd read my book and she'd wanted to ask a question and, you know, and comment and thank me for my solidarity and the work. So the audience may have thought that this was, a you know, a profound moment of um, connection, but it was actually just me falling apart because I'm just bawling my eyes out on the stage because I'm tired. I haven't looked after myself. It is hard to talk about mental illness. I had done an, an event the evening before at the Writers' Festival about mental illness while I'm fragile still sharing, still talking about trauma. That particular day I'm talking about intergenerational trauma, racism, structural inequity, discrimination. These are hard things to talk about. Like I'm not selling diet tea. I'm not, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it, but I, like this work is hard. It's taxing. It's emotionally taxing. And, and, and sometimes I get that balance wrong. How much do you give? How much do you share at the cost of your well-being? And at that point it tipped too much um the scales have tipped too much and I was just a babbling I just broke down I just couldn't even answer I couldn't speak and everyone the other panelists are kind of looking at me going (laughs) Um, and I'm like I'm not I I just I'm not um and and so unfortunately those moments happen not too frequently but frequently enough for me to realize that it's easy for that self-care to go out the window and when it does it's not good because and then it took me at least three weeks to get my sleep back on track um I, I just completely stopped drinking i cleared my social calendar i cleared my work calendar um, and i needed to reconnect with myself and my family um so yeah i don't always i don't always do it well but i think that's a really beautiful insight into mental illness is that it is a journey and people who you know, who are vulnerable to anxiety or to depression, they can push themselves a lot harder until they can't anymore. It's almost like a laceration in our brain. You know, if you run every day and you get a sore knee, you pull a ligament, same thing with people who suffer mental illness. And, you know, you push hard and you keep pushing hard because you want to do more work and greater work for the greater good, right? But then it becomes at the expense of yourself. And I think that's a, a really great insight, Antoinette. You know, I've, I've had a couple of relapses since postnatal depression and similar situation where I've been pushing myself too hard or I've been off medication for six months. or and But I think being aware of what that looks like and then knowing what to do next, you know, that yes. this is what I need to do. I need to take three weeks of a pause from the stuff that I love doing for work to invest in my number one precious self or resource, which is which is you. And so I think that's great, you know, even just listening to those simple steps that you took to uh, to get yourself back on track with clearing your schedule, focusing on sleep, cutting the alcohol, you know, those those really sort of basic things that we we know what to do, right, if we uh, yeah. start slipping. And I, I, I think hmm. it just also raises this other question that, you know, advocacy and ambassador work is so important because people feel less alone there's a there's a there's a human face there's someone they can relate to but it did at that point make me question is the net benefit worth it it made me question like do do, is sharing and reliving mental health trauma I know it is so important because there is so, there is there's still so much stigma, let alone access to equitable healthcare and services. There's just so much work to be done, and it made me question: Gosh, am I? How much am I damaging myself further? Um, in in terms of this advocacy, so in that in that one week, I was doing stuff on mental health, on women's leadership, 
and I was doing something on, you know, racial trauma. And I was just like, oh, far out. Like this is this is heavy, unfair stuff where there's no end in sight. And when you're not well, it's hard to be hopeful. It's hard to be inspiring. It's hard to be. And so I did have this, this, this kind of existential crisis where I was like, what am I doing? What is it for? Who am I helping? And am I hurting myself too much? And I, I've, I'm still answering those questions. This is like this relapse is very recent. And so I'm still on a, on a journey to try and answer some of those questions and figure out what I'm going to do next. You know, do I retreat from public life? Is that what I need to do? And I, I don't have that answer. But I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to figure it out. It's a very important reflection piece. And I think having, you know, at the end of Are You OK Week, I had to take four days off. I was so exhausted, you know, and it's, I it think. Was that, it was that week. It was that, mm. it was the Are You OK Week. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> a lot of the time the, the ambassadors and their mental health advocates are not okay that week. They just aren't. <laughs> they just, they give so much of themselves out that week that uh, it comes at the detriment of their own mental health. And I think that's a really important thing for as ambassadors and as mental health advocates just to be very, very aware of that. And if the balance is tipping too great in the other direction, then maybe it's, you know, maybe it's that time that you do take that step back and that's okay. Uh, I think, you know, with, with your voice and... I mean, you're the co-founder of Media Diversity Australia, which is a not-for-profit, okay, working towards increasing sort of culture and linguist diversity in the media. I think you've got such an incredibly confident voice who's speaking up about these really important issues. I feel some people are really afraid of speaking up, almost in fear of being judged. What are the steps that help you to become more confident with your voice? You know, that whole thing about just not, not just not, you know, spoke about offline, giving yeah. to it's as much anymore. Yeah. I think it it comes with some battle scars and some battle wounds. I think um, I've been in the media for 15 or so years and I only really found that I've come into my voice, so to speak, um, within the past five years. And it also comes with a certain amount of privilege because I'm established enough now to not care if a particular employer doesn't want to work with me. I also have a partner who who makes enough money that if I, you know, lost a job or whatever, or even in writing my book, I was working at Network 10 at the time. And I know that, you know, my book is provocative and um, and I, I had to go, okay, what am I prepared to lose? And I was prepared to be fired. I, I, I left Channel 10 on good terms and I may work there again in the future in some capacity, but I had to sit down and do a kind of a pros and cons list of what is the likely outcome of this. So, and I think it's important that I acknowledge the amount of privilege I now have compared to, you know, Antoinette who used to jump the barriers at the local train station to get to university because I didn't have the train fare. I There was so much more to lose back then that I and, and so I, I just I'm empowered by my confidence and my experience, but also because I'm able to stand on my own two feet, and I'm two feet and I'm able to weather whatever backlash I have. And that is from a position of power and privilege. And so I'm trying to use that relative power and privilege I now have um, to shine a light on ongoing inequities and the role that the media plays in perpetuating that discrimination Um and so, yeah, I think people go, oh, wow, it's amazing. How do you do it? I'm like, well, it wasn't that easy. And I really, I've really sat down and thought about what am I prepared to lose? And I have enough to be able to lose a little, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. Now, your book, 
your incredible book, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was great. <laughs> what is one message from your book? There's so many fantastic sort of golden nuggets in that book, but what's the one thing that you want all readers to know and take away from that book? I guess in, in keeping what I just said about privilege, that privilege isn't a dirty word. People think that, oh, if I'm privileged, it means I'm a complete knob. It's like, well, no, it's what you do with that privilege. And I know that I have power and privilege, you know, even though I'm a brown woman, um, I have more power and privilege than Indigenous women. I have more power and privilege than um, newly arrived refugees from the Middle East who have an accent or who don't have the education I have. Just understanding where you sit in the kind of racial hierarchy in Australia, I think that's really important and being comfortable with it. You don't get to decide where you sit in that hierarchy. You know, I was out for uh, dinner with my girlfriend last night, my best friend, and, you know, she's the daughter of two doctors who, you know, was born into a trust fund and, you know, so many privileges. She's a blonde, beautiful white woman who was born into a medical family. She's like, that's who I, that was my start to life, but that's not my end point. And it's, it's what you do with the voice and the power and the resources you have that I think is more important. And so let's just do away with the guilt of, oh, I went to a private school or I'm a white middle-aged man or, you know, I don't have black skin or I don't understand. You know, if, if you want a better and fairer Australia, we just need to own where we are in this hierarchy and try and use that position to for the betterment of other people. And I, and I just think that's step one because there is so much defensiveness and deflecting we don't even get to the work. We don't even get to try and bridge the divide or dismantle discrimination because people are too caught up in their own egos and their own defensiveness. And I think that's a real shame. That's incredible. I'm going to link in the notes to find your book. Please, everyone listening today, make sure you buy Antoinette's book. It is absolutely incredible. This podcast and the information contained therein is made available for educational purposes only and is not intended to provide medical advice. This information should not be used as a substitute for competent medical advice from a licensed specialist, doctor or psychologist. Thank you.